0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So this morning, we've come to the beginning. That is the beginning of the end. And that's the end of the beginning of the introductory portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so it may feel like, boy, kind of been a little bit of a protracted time in Philippians in the first early verses. Part of that, there was a, an extended gap in which I was gone and Matt was filling in, and he, he continued to extend that filling in very graciously and walked us through Galatians. But this is the end of the beginning of the introductory portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And over the course of some weeks now, we've walked together through verses 1 through 9, and I fully anticipate advancing through verses 10 and 11 today, which will bring us to the end of Paul's introduction. An introduction that uh, followed a rather, I'd say, a consistent pattern for Paul's letters as it began with a statement of authorship and recipients, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, an opening blessing of grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then an extensive engagement of thanksgiving. This is where we spent a lot of our time over the last few weeks. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers with me in this grace. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And as one would reasonably anticipate, we then come to a statement of prayer. A statement of prayer. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, in introducing this fourth portion of Paul's introduction, I affirm that. Uh, what is a reasonable deduction for one who is a student of Paul's letters? Namely, that following these other elements, we could reasonably anticipate his providing a statement on prayer. That's the natural pattern. That's what you would expect. And, and that's true. If you, if you were working toward that and you came to that deduction, he's addressed authorship. He's addressed grace and peace. He's given Thanksgiving. Uh, next is going to be prayer. That's the nature of the pattern. And when we see um, a, a, a deviation from that pattern, when there's variation of this pattern, it, it, we draw attention to it. It's different. Oh, it catches our attention. However, there was something unique to the concluding portion of Paul's thanksgiving. And I would say it changed our expectations and approach to his engagement on prayer. And in what way did it change our expectations? I'd say it elevated them. And some of you, perhaps those who were not able to be present with us last week, you may be reasonably asking why. You know, you have that formula. You have what you expect in the, the progress of an epistle. So how is it that he sets something that elevated the expectation that now he's going to speak to prayer? And Why would our expectations have changed here? After all, we're familiar with the patterns of epistolatory introductions. Therefore, we naturally conclude that he was all but certainly going to be speaking to prayer. Of prayer next. So what could he have stated to have elevated our expectation? Well, I would say affection changes expectation. Affection always will change expectation. Where your affection is, where it draws your heart, will change expectation. What are they going to do? Well, watch the heart. So many of you understand the picture of someone who may uh, that we may use with a, maybe a protective context specifically a mother. So there's different roles that, by design, God's given us. And by nature, there's a, protective nat- there's a protective quality with many moms, especially with small children. And we call that there being a mama bear. That's not an insult, is it? No, that's a, oh, don't, don't mess with those kids. She's being a mama bear. And this image works, does it not? Because why does it work? Well, it's common knowledge that you should not provoke a bear in the wild right? That's that's common knowledge. If it's not, let me help you out. You should never provoke a, a bear in the wild. But I'm going to help you out a little bit more. You shouldn't provoke a bear anywhere. So if we're taking our fellowship time break later and a bear walks in the parking lot, don't provoke it. That's not natural. It's not good. Why? Because there's an imminent threat to your life and welfare. If the said bear engages you, it will all but certainly be the victor. Not going to win. Now, what if there are cubs present? Well, now the prospect of imminent harm is radically elevated as the mother bear, the mama bear, as it were, will be even more aggressively prepared to engage you and to remove the threat from her cubs. And so we understand that dynamic of affection changing expectations. Her love for those cubs is going to change what we can expect of her conduct. So now, okay, engaging bear, will keep your distance. And then there's cubs on scene. Now she may close that distance. Again, why? Because affection changes expectation. And Paul gave us a beautiful expression of affection that I would say changes expectations here. One that was really so magnificent that if he was not a spirit-inspired apostle, I would say he was embellishing his words. You know, some people say they, again, they, they talk big or they say, oh, I love this so much. And then you watch their life, and you kind of can probably evaluate, well, they probably have a, a strong desire toward it, but really, is it? I think that was a bit of an embellishment. This is not an embellishment. When he states, For God is my witness, how I long for you all, all you Philippian believers, with the affection of Christ Jesus. I long for you all. Okay, that's not uncommon. So how? How are you longing for them? With the affection of Christ Jesus. Affection being the depth of thought and emotion felt and experienced so deeply it moves one's person, and this measure of affection being united with Christ Jesus. Well, that's all but unbelievable for Paul to speak of himself about the Philippians, except for the fact that it was true. So it's very strong language of affection that, again, if I were to express it towards someone else, I could say, I really want that to be true, and I'm striving for that to be true, but for Paul, he, he could own it. And last week, we took a look at another like expression of affection by Paul, the only other expression of affection that I think comes close to what he expresses here. And you may remember that was from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, where he states, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies me with the Holy Spirit, or within me, um, with me in the Holy Spirit. So we can pause there and be like, well, wait a second. He's really protecting what he has to say now, isn't he? He's really saying, look, I don't want you to give me the benefit of the doubt, you need to know without a doubt what I'm saying is absolutely true. So what is it that he's going to say? That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Oh, Paul, what do you, how far are you taking that language? Separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And we could reasonably ask, how could he speak like this? It's all but really too much. Unbelievable. That is, it would be unbelievable if it were not true. But it was true. And with this, we noted how he responded in both of these moments of extraordinary affection. What did he do? He prayed. For the unregenerate, he prayed for their salvation. For the fellow believers in Christ, he prayed for their sanctification. And more precisely, he prayed with a view to the day of Christ. So it was all but inevitable that Paul was going to transition from, prayer, from thanksgiving to prayer. Perhaps, perhaps it was all but inevitable, but following his statement of magnificent affection, we conclude that it was all but absolutely sure. Why? Because affection changes expectations. And the moment we hear that weight of affection, we, all, we must all but expect that prayer is soon to follow. For Paul to express a love for someone of that nature, of that depth, of that quality, What is he going to do? He's going to pray. For the unregenerate, he's going to pray. For those beloved in Christ, he's going to pray. So how does he pray for the Philippians? Well, he tells us right here. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, we've worked our way through approximately one-third of this statement, the statement of prayer, and we're going to finish it today. But what did we observe in our first engagement with it? Well, We observed that Paul prayed that the Philippians' love would abound more and more in full knowledge and all discernment. Therefore, he was not praying for them to acquire love, or even that the love that they presently possessed would now be supplemented with knowledge and understanding, making up for some measure of deficiency that he would like to see resolved for them. No. Their love, as do all expressions of biblical love, already possess these qualities of knowledge and discernment. So again, praying for you to be full of these things, to have more and more, it communicates that, one, you have a love. Two, that your love is full of knowledge, that's possessing knowledge and discernment. I'm going to pray for more of it. So what Paul desired for them was their progress in these matters. Not that they would possess, but that they would progress that they would progress in these matters. Perhaps more accurately stated, that they would mature. They would mature with an abundance in these matters. And what was the nature of this knowledge that he wants them to mature and abound in? Well, it was, as we observe both in Philippians and other Pauline letters, a knowledge of the person and work of Christ, a maturing abundance of insight, a maturing abundance of understanding, and a maturing abundance of appreciation of our redemption and the glory that it returns to our Redeemer. In Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, we observed, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, so that like pattern, while making mention of you in my prayers. Again, how is he praying, and is there a connection to knowledge and discernment? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that you, you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. What does he want them to know? The person and work of Christ, the nature of your redemption. We see this again in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to see a like pattern. What does he want them to know? Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. For this reason also, since the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with full knowledge of his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, I you to know the person and work of Christ, the nature of our redemption and what that requires of us, what that accomplishes within us. And once more, this was more and more knowledge and more and more discernment. Knowledge, as we've demonstrated, being a greater understanding and appreciation of the person and work of Christ. Discernment being the skill of properly evaluating something, here being exercised in the sphere of the spiritual and of that which is pleasing to God. You need to know how to walk well. You need to understand your redemption. You need to discern what it is that you've been delivered from and delivered to. And so again, there's that marriage of knowledge and discernment that you already possess. That's the nature of biblical love. You possess that. Now I desire, because of my great affection for you, that you would possess it more and more. And we see Paul's exercising of such a discernment put on plain display in chapter 3, where he considers his high standing and notable accomplishments, matters of no small consequence, and ones that would secure high praise from many men. However, Paul's valuation of such matters was that in comparison to knowing Christ, they're all but garbage, refuse to be discarded. In this sphere of valuations, knowing Christ strips anything less of, of, of excuse me he strips anything less of any standing or value. Uh, picking up again, also with verse four of chapter three, he states, "If anyone else, if someone else, or if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So all that qualification, you can just basically say no control over that, but a reasonable point of pride. You might say, well, I was." Born in the United States, in the city of Atlanta, of this family, and this is my, my pedigree, my heritage, but it's, it's a point of pride. Reasonable pride. But what does he have control over? A Pharisee. As to the law of Pharisee. You now you think, oh, that language. Well, he picks up that language later and expresses, remember when he's before the Sanhedrin or before the, the council there, he says, brother, I'm a Pharisee. might think, oh, don't use that language, Paul, but he's saying, I love and defend and uphold the integrity of the scripture. So as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's my historic resume. Pretty outstanding in terms of Judaism. First century Judaism, trying to protect the integrity of the faith. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, there's that valuation, that discernment, More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Paul wanted to know Christ, wanted to know the work of Christ, wanted to appreciate his redemption, wanted to engage in that. And that knowledge was paired, married to a clear discernment, a clear valuation of what had been so valuable, which was now viewed as rubbish in view of knowing Christ. So once more, out of an eruption of affection, Paul prays for this beloved church. He prays that which he would desire for himself. He prays that which he would expect of anybody walking well, that their love would abound more and more and full knowledge and all discernment. And we could just stop there, right? Well, we did last week, and that was a really nice place to land. And, and we could we just say, well, what a great way to be praying for somebody. You know, for the mission moment, I give you like four little bullet things. He's just given us one, and we could just stand on that and work with that and That's a lot to to invest in and to labor in and struggle in prayer. And if someone prayed like that for me, gratitude would be abounding. It seems like it's enough, doesn't it? That your love would abound in in full knowledge and all discernment. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He didn't didn't even peak in this petition of prayer yet. Again, I think it would be a good place to stop unless there's something more, unless there's something better, unless we're building towards something, which is exactly what he's doing. So it's a concise and powerful articulation of his desires for these beloved saints. However, this was but the foundation of his prayer. Again, albeit a robust foundation, and on this foundation he will build with more matters of prayer that demonstrate a masterful petition for the progress of their sanctification. That's what he's aiming at. He wants to see Christ formed in them. He wants those who he's called... um, He's identified himself as a saint, or excuse me, as a slave of Christ Jesus. And he's addressed the Philippians as what? As saints, holy ones. He wants them to become more holy, more and more separated from this world and separated to God. A sanctification that is calibrated also with a fixed view to the day of Christ. So you want to, you want to progress in your sanctification, you have to be calibrated. You need to be fixed on something, namely the day of Christ. And we see this plainly developing before us, beginning with this I pray. So there's, that's going to be our foundation, this I pray. And then he explains what he's praying, establishing that foundation. And from this I pray, he brings us to so that. I'm praying this, so that. So he's, he's slowly building here. And from so that, it's then followed by in order to be. So I'm praying this, so that, in order to be. You see how he's building. He's building his, not just an argument. He's, he's stepping up, 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 as he's praying for them. And then finally, having been. So in order that, we finish with having been, having been bridging the present with the glorious day to come, the day when Christ comes for his beloved bride, a day of judgment, and a day of reward, a day of transformation, and a day for God's glory to be praised. And so again, we've started with the foundation, this I pray, so that in order to, having been, again, in view of the day of Christ. Now, having established the catalyst for his praying and the foundation of the prayer itself, we come to the next great element of how Paul prayed for the Philippians. He states again, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ. Now, even with picking up with so that, We have a lot to work through, so let's begin with the approving of the excellent. First, we observe that more and more knowledge and discernment would indicate a progress and maturity. We've already established that, so to have more and more is indicative of it's present there, we want to see it mature, a progressive maturity in one's love, a progress and maturity that does not stagnate with being content with that which is expressed as okay and reasonably acceptable. That's not how Paul works. He's not saying... Nah, that's OK. Good enough. That's not the nature of sanctification. It doesn't talk like that. It doesn't think like that. It expects more. And to reach these higher pursuits, knowledge and discern, uh, pursuits, knowledge and discernment are exercised by way of approving the excellent. And so how are we going to get to where sanctification is pressing us to go? Where well, you need that foundation of knowledge and discernment, and they're going to advance us to the pursuit of what is excellent. Now let me season this discussion with a negative example before exhorting you further toward what is better. I know that I've shared with many of you, and it's in various contexts an experience that I had when I was seeking counsel from a pastor-professor figure that I had overlapped with earlier in life. Um, I thought, okay, this man's seasoned in, in, in life, seasoned in the faith, he's walked well. Um, and I'm not, I'm not being cryptic, it wasn't Frank. Get that out of your head. It wasn't Frank. This is somebody not in our present sphere of influence. And again, I'm not going to, for reasons I think will be made plain, I'm not going to share any more details about him because I don't want to dishonor him on account of what I can only presume was a really low season for him. I'm going to highlight my engagement because it was the engagement I had, but I truthfully think this, was a, this is a low season for him. And you're probably going to walk through those. Thank the Lord that we don't live with just sound bites, right? We have a larger context. But it just happened to also be, again, when I came to him for advice. I asked him for his thoughts on balancing the expectations and demands of pastoral ministry with family and possibly working in some more schooling. I knew he would, he would understand that. That was his fear of influence and experience. And he listened to what I was doing in service for the church at that time. There were several areas of service. And I, basically my modus operandi would be like, okay, there's a leak, I'll plug it. And there's a an leak, I'll plug it. And, I was, and lots of little tiny leaks as plugging. And that was the nature of part of my service. I had what I was expected to do, and then a lot of plugs. That was just part of the nature of caring for the church. Many areas of service that I believe, again, were of genuine value and had become clear elements of my pastoral role at that point in time, but few of them were prescribed expectations. And so he listened to this, and he responded with, only do what they expect or require of you, nothing more. That's a really a boost of encouragement, isn't it? But then it was followed up with, his reason as to why. He says, You know, they all left Paul. They'll leave you too. I came for encouragement and clarification. That was, that was a fail. Um, it was a low point for him. But again, don't do any more than what's required of you. And that should bother you. And you might be thinking, Well, I know what my, my job description says, and not a, not a bit more. It's all they're getting out of me. I bet you're employee of the month really often. And again, what was the motivation? Well, they all left Paul. They'll leave you. So needless to say, I was a bit taken aback at his counsel to be a, a minimalist in service and care of Christ's church, particularly in view of the prospect that I can work hard, but it likely won't matter anyway. But was that not the gamble that Paul took over and over again? He, he gave himself. You, you look at somebody like, wow, they really served the church. Literally, physically spent himself living with the burden that his sacrificial, give, sacrificial giving of himself might prove to be in vain with a given individual church. You see that time and time again. Thessalonians, you get to one, chapters 1 and 2, he's kind of building, and then a shift in tone comes in chapter 3. When I finally couldn't stand it anymore, I sent Timothy. And he said, y'all are doing okay. Whew, okay, tone of the letter changes. Galatians, what have we solved? Am I, I going to have to birth Christ in you again? And then Philippians. He also speaks of, I I want to know I'm not laboring in vain. That was the gamble he took, though, wasn't it? That's not the gamble that a minimalist takes. And yet he continued giving himself because he loved them. He loved Christ's church, and affections change expectations. Because he loved, there was the expectation that he would do, and he would do, and he would do more. A love for for Christ and his church not only carries you through rough seasons, and I trust that the Lord has seen this man through his, but they press you toward excellence. Because again, maturing love presses you to excellence. That's what it does. It naturally is going to drive you there. More knowledge, more discernment is going to bring you to a place where you can approve what is excellent, not what is getting you by. But that which is excellent takes a measure of approving, of of testing, of examining. You're not just going to Walk through life and know always what's best, what's excellent, what is preeminent quality in terms of much anything, much less the things of the Lord. So, again, it takes a measure of approving, of testing, of examining, of wrestling to determine what does the truly or what's the best truly look like. And so, Paul prays for them why? Because he's got this incredible affection for them that drives them to prayer. Your love, it's present. It has knowledge and discernment. We want to see that abound. To what end? That you would be able to do that work of approving, of testing, of discerning. So that. So that they will approve, test, and examine to know that which is excellent. And we understand this, do we not? That, that approving the excellent is not the, the overly simplistic work of discerning good from bad. That's not approving the excellent. That's elementary congratulations, you chose not to sin, well done. That's what we want children to be skilled at. We just want them to be able to, to do and not do. That's not maturity, that's not excellence. But we would expect more of the mature. So yesterday, I heard, I believe, Christian Matthew talking to Noah or Salas, I forget who, I walk through places, I hear things and I think they were talking about the work day and, and I got injured. Um, not really. It was a scrape. But nevertheless, um, I may have a story for that down the road. I also did something else not on purpose. I didn't mean to get scratched by potentially rusty screw. And I also didn't mean to volunteer for hours of manual labor in the hot sun, purely by accident. No and Silas, again, their cross-country team, they have a work day to prepare the home course for the season. And if you were available, you could sign up. And I thought, well, I want be a good whatever I am and sign up, and the boys are going to sign up. And we were available to help, so we did. And as soon as I heard about the list, it was about a week ago, I looked it over and observed. There's a lot of opportunities to help, some more simple, some more skilled. And I thought, "Eh, why sign up right now when I could do it later? You know, it's right there in front of me. There's the list. There's all the blanks. And why why do today what I could put off for tomorrow? Real excellent attitude. Well, later came, and the options were very few. And among them were trimming limbs and replacing boards on a bridge. And so I thought, okay, they'll, they can trim limbs. I'll help out with the bridge. So I signed notes, so I'll set up for trimming limbs and myself for boards. And I was very curious why they wanted five to six men to replace a few boards on a bridge. Thinking like a little like four foot dome thing. Well, it's because it was a long bridge. It's like 30, 35, 40 feet. I'm a terrible guesser. It was really long. And the boards, they were 12 feet wide. <laughs> and they didn't come out just because you had a screw gun and trying to back out the screws. Because when there's rod, it just spins. Or there's different heads, or they're broken in there. or Oh, what a mess. And so then there's pry bars that are coming out. There's holding boards up while somebody else is prying, and there's, you're sweating. And then you're, you have people occasionally come by with their weed whackers and looking at you and like, oh, y'all got the bridge. And... <laughs> There we go. Picking up boards, breaking apart, laboring. And then you get to something that's going to happen when you are removing rotten boards. You're probably going to find what? You're going to find other rot. You find that there's some rotten supports. So now we have a new problem and it requires new solutions. And that's being addressed. Don't worry, we didn't just put boards over rot. Um, not quite that level of professional yet. Now, I'm not a carpenter. It may come as a surprise. But I knew we had a problem that needed a resolution. But that was an elementary observation, wasn't it? If you look down and the support is rotten, congratulations, that's elementary, right? Simple. Required minimal observation, no skill, no maturity of thought or experience in these matters. If a grown man cannot look at a rotten board and conclude, that's bad. People probably shouldn't be walking over it to stay above water. There's a problem there. A grown man should understand that, right? That's not mature. That's just natural common sense. Now, those supports are being repaired, and I could probably figure out how to do an okay job. I could probably just stick boards together enough to hold each other up. But the mature among us, they would expect more, wouldn't they? They would expect to measure more, they would expect to measure more carefully, uh, to place the boards more precisely. They're going to do what they can to not only say uh, to address that problem but to safeguard from like problems happening again. Why? Because they're pursuing what is excellent. They're not just saying, oh, let's fix this problem. We'll tack it together. Who cares what it looks like? Who cares if it lasts? But what does the excellent do? It cuts out the bad. It measures more carefully. It makes it look nice, and it protects it. There's a difference, right, between just getting by and the excellent. And so here we have an approving. They're going to examine, they're going to test what would be best. How can we do this better? What would the excellent look like? The testing, the examining, the wrestling to determine what would be excellent. And that's what the mature do, right? We see that in all kinds of fields. The mature don't just say, eh, whatever. They test, they examine, they carefully evaluate. They want to know what is excellent. And then they apply themselves to it. And that's the nature of a mature love that's filled with knowledge and discernment. And that's how Paul is praying for the Philippians, that you would grow, mature in knowledge and understanding or discernment. To what end? So that you would know what's excellent. Not in bridges, but in walking in grace and growing in grace and maturing in the faith that you don't look at and be like, well, that's enough. Is it enough? Do you really know that? If you struggle to determine that's enough or that's what Christ would have me to do or that's going to reflect his glory more perfectly. Because then you do that testing and approving. Well, how can I do that? How would I know what to do? Well, you grow in knowledge, and discernment. That's the nature of maturing love, pursuing the excellent. And he continues on that they would approve the excellent, not that they would just get by, not that they would just be content with being decent folks, perhaps even decent Christians. that That's not the nature of the sanctification that Paul's praying for them. And if you've found yourself there, then a little bit of pity and a little bit of needed prodding, maybe even a measure of rebuke. That's not the nature of biblical sanctification. He's not saying that you would approve, you know, what's necessary. That you'd approve what's getting by. Well, look, my bridge doesn't sag. It's okay. I fixed it. Is that excellent, though? Look, you know, life's hard. I'm being a good Christian. Look at everybody else. But is it excellent? Excellent. They wouldn't be satisfied with doing what is necessary. They wouldn't be satisfied with uh, running in the pack, as it were, but pursuing the excellent. But even if such a low ambition were acceptable and therefore could be one's aim, then know this, what is necessary is a vigorous pursuit of the excellent. That's always what we're charged to. So if you're content with being at best average, then I truthfully probably don't want you in my sports team I figured that one out. You notice, I don't play basketball very much. I'm an all or none. Denise and I have had some struggles with her tennis efforts. I want to know, is there effort at least? Tell me there's effort. That can't be what effort looks like. <laughs> pursue the excellence. So I'll struggle with that with sports team. But if you don't want to pursue the excellence, I don't know that I'm even going to work with you. Because someone that's just getting by, they're a good employee, a good coworker? No. But what about partnering with someone in ministry? That definitely would not be a good fit if you're not pursuing the excellence. Not because I'm very competitive, though I am. I don't have much to show for it, but I am. And not even because, well, I graduated at the top of my class. Well, I never have. Not because I have some unique skill set to offer. I really don't. But because of maturing love, a maturing love will always pursue the excellent. So again, We go out there and play basketball, I'll tell you who loves the game. You can see it. You can see how they try, how they pursue it, how they cultivate that in others. And I can tell you who's just out there to hang out. That's not how you want to be evaluated in your growing in grace. Like, yeah, you're happy to be part of the church. They, they want to be like Christ. They're pursuing the excellent. So you can toss aside my thoughts on sports competition or even work, but don't you dare see that the lesser things as grounds to set aside the standard of excellence in the things of the Lord, they are always to be pursued, because such is what is expected of every one of us, every one of us. So is that too much to expect, the approving of what is excellent? Well, consider this. It is a mature expression of love to ask, is it a mature expression to ask the one that you, you love, the, that one, maybe your spouse or whoever that you that you have an affection for? Is it a mature expression of love to say, hey, you know, happy anniversary. What do I need to do to get by for another year? Is that a mature expression of love? "Ah, It's been 20 years. Who'd have thought? Hmm, whatever. Glad we're persevering. Or is it a maturing love that asks, what can I do to excel that I might pursue my best for you? What can I do to, to cultivate what's best in me to reflect an affection for you? Ah, the, the two, you'd say, them? They'll probably continue to make it because nobody else is going to pick either one of them up. <laughs> them, they really love each other. And they seem to really love each other more than they could when they got married because they didn't possess the knowledge or discernment and they're to approve of things that are excellent because you can't at that point in time. You have to mature in that. And again, such is the nature of sanctification. Exactly what Paul's praying for them. But you know this, don't you? Again, you know that this is the nature of sanctification. It's sanctification, it's it's saints, it's growing in holiness. It's the parsing of the excellent. That's a critical element of our sanctification. It's not simply working through the clutter of what's morally perverse and morally good. That's again, that's what the children do. Congratulations, you didn't do bad. Yay, gold star for the day. That's not growing in grace, but what is growing in grace? It's pursuing that which is excellent, and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to discern such matters, but this is the means by which one progresses in being sincere and without fault, which is what he's driving to now, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ. So now we're progressing to acting on excellence, being sincere and without fault. Now, it's fairly universal to have a, a low view of insincerity, isn't it? I don't know anybody that, like, you know what? I just, I want to surround myself with the most insincere people. No, we don't like that. We loathe that. And we don't like those who have a fault-filled life. That's, those are uh, not qualities we want to pursue. And therein lies the danger of the identities that we observe in the opening of the larger introduction of this book where Paul refers to himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus and the believers of Philippi as saints of Christ Jesus, identities that are not to be relegated to a bygone day, but ones that we too would do well to have shape our own lives. But those are some really weighty identities. So how do we take on such identities in a way that reflects sincerity, a way that reflects that... um, We're cultivating that excellent, that we're without fault, that we really are trying to walk as saints and slaves of Christ. The one expressing an absolute servitude to a perfect and good master, namely the Lord himself. The other expressing that they are set apart from the world to God. How do we do that in such a way that it's sincere and without fault? Well, that's hard. It's really hard. It's a tall charge to be sincere, to be without fault, and yet That's the expectation, what he's been driving at. Remember, he didn't just stop at verse 9 and say, I'm praying this for you, and I really hope you grow in grace and truth, and I hope you get more knowledge and discernment. No, I prayed that so that you can approve what is excellent to what end so that you can be sincere and without fault. Those high standards. So the expectation that we'd be like an examined and refined metal, as it were, one that is pure and uncontaminated, the expectation that we live our lives with the consistency and integrity, knowledge in and harmony, in harmony with our convictions, convictions in harmony with speech and conduct, a life that does not hide from the scrutiny that comes from the examination that light provides. And that's part of the language he was using here. A lot of people love the, the idea of holding a pot up and seeing the wax. There's also the idea of garments being taken out in the light. Light reveals things. And he's basically saying, live in such a way that you can live in the light and it reveal the nature of the integrity of your life and walk. And that's hard. A life without fault. A life that does not promote the stumbling of others. A life of relational integrity. Again, not causing others to stumble. And I really like how William Hendrickson expressed it. We are not stumbled against. That's the nature of what we we do. We're we're not to be the, the rock that someone else trips over. We're not stumbled against, or or we're not worthy of blame. Okay, but what might this look like? Well, it might look like what Paul had to say for himself. In view of this, i also do my best to maintain a conscience without fault, both before God and before men. Well, that's sincere, and that's without fault, isn't it? That he could say, he could speak with integrity. Now, he's testifying here, and it's more of a, a legal context, but We can go beyond that. That was the nature of his true testimony, his his life testimony, that I do my best to maintain always a conscience without fault, both before God and before men. Before men, maybe you can fake that. You can't fake it before God. It's a tall order. And then he picks up also... um, Excuse me, with, uh, that was Acts 24, verse 16. And then we also see 2 Corinthians 1, 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in this world and especially toward you. And then we also see in 2 Timothy 1, 3, I'm grateful to God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I unceasingly remember you in my prayers night and day. And you can pause here and be like, okay, that, that was Paul. I mean, really, that was Paul. Who can really speak like this now? Well, it's, it's been a while, but not that long ago. It was reported, and I found it in a couple of different sources with uh, the origin of the, the thing, and sometimes people, things get sensationalized, so we'll just take it with a grain of salt. But it was reported that Charles Spurgeon once stated something, the effect that you could, he would be content that you could write his life across the skies as he had nothing to hide. I'm not sure that I would want my life written across the sky. I'm not sure any of us would. But perhaps we would be content with this. Maybe an abridged version of our life written across the sky with an emphasis on the latter years. Maybe that, uh, something in the effect that it would read um, that they were redeemed and began a long, arduous journey of sanctification, but along the way their love was maturing more and more. There was more knowledge and discernment. There was the approving of the excellent, and there was increasing expression of being sincere and without fault. That's not a bad story, and it should sum us up. It shouldn't be like, well, yeah, but that's an awfully lofty goal. That's what Paul prayed. He didn't just arbitrarily pray and say, well, boy, Philippians needs to be this chapter, or this, this many word count. You know, it's awkward, it's embarrassing not to fit this much on a scroll What would the other apostles say? No, he's saying, I'm praying for this because I have such a high affection for you, such a tremendous love that it's almost unbelievable except the fact that it's true. And this is what I desire. I want you to pursue the excellent. I want you to mature in your love so that you will be sincere without fault, that you'll be sanctified. And again, that might sound disheartening to some. That's not achievable. That's just, that's a little silly. That's a little out of reach. And so we refresh our attention here to something we've already walked through together. And it should encourage you. Back in 1.6, He who began a good work and you will perfect it. It's not the prospect of, it's likely. He will perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. So if the Lord has begun his work, he will finish it. But this does not put us on autopilot. Not far from it. As D.A. Carson stated, Paul does not envisage, envisage, envisage here, Mere maintenance of the Philippians' faith, but positive improvement in their discipleship until it is capped by the perfection effected by the last day, the day of, Christ, of the day of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that's the calibration we have to keep in view. It is impossible. That's why we pray and we seek the Lord of glory. Would you strengthen and help me and work your work in me? And what does he do? Yes, he does that. And then you struggle and you labor for that, but you struggle and labor for it with a view to the day of Christ. So how ought you to be until that day, if not sincere and without fault? And that's a question you have to ask for yourself. If we're living in view of the day of Christ, do you really want to show up? You want to be prepared for that day? Anything short of being sincere and without fault? You want to say, the Lord of glory is returning. He's going to come snatch his bride into the air. I just hope he doesn't see me in the process. Or that, you know, he'll understand. We can't all be, you know... Those excellent folks, how ought you to live and view the fact that the Lord will have his great and glorious day? And then ask a good follow-up question for yourself. By what means might I be sincere without fault into the day of Christ? So how can I do it? Well, you have an answer now, don't you? You don't have to live and view the day of Christ and think, Ooh, that list has a lot of options on it." I'll get to it tomorrow or mm, I'm not sure what to do. Not sure what to do. Maybe it'll become clear later. You know what to do. Mature your love with more knowledge and discernment so that you will have the capacity to better test what is excellent. And in identifying the excellent, pursue it. Pursue it until you've overtaken it and own it. Own it more and more, mature in it, and let it be your identity coming into the day of Christ. That's how we're going to get there. That's what Paul's praying. Why does he pray it? Because he loves the church. Why does he love the church? Because it's Christ's bride. What does Christ desire for his bride? He wants them to be perfect and complete and lacking and nothing. Remember, James expressed that as well. Now we can pause here for a second, because if you're like me, you're probably hoping that someone will finally clarify, what is the day of Christ? Keep saying, calibrate yourself for the day of Christ. What does it mean? I I saw you. No, actually, I'm not pointing at anybody, but I've been there and I've, I've wrestled with things like that. I want to calibrate myself, but what does it mean? Well, If you were here when I taught through verse 6, you might be curious. At that point in time, I'm a little curious because I don't think I did a particularly good job. Why I pressed a firm distinction between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. Because, well, now maybe I started to get a handle on the day of the Lord, but now you're parsing them. You were emphatic. You said it's not the day of the Lord because that's a day of judgment. And there's so much overlap in the language. So, how do I understand that? Because if I'm going to understand it, or if I'm going to calibrate myself to it, I should probably understand it. Well, There's a direct and simple answer, but I want you to appreciate the matter and not just have a direct and simple answer because this day informs not only how Paul prayed for the Philippians, but again, the aim of our conduct. So that being said, this is really only a sampling of a much larger and exhaustive subject, but I think it will help us some, particularly as we note the apparent overlap of language and elements between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. So first we can note that we all will stand before God in judgment, in some form or another. You might think, well, well, hold on, I'm in Christ. Well, Romans, the Roman believers that Paul wrote to, he studied this, Romans 14, 10, 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you view your brother with contempt? For we, we... Roman Christian believers will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written as I live says the Lord to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God that's not thats nothing to spook us with there's a re, there's a distinguishment in our judgment and the judgment of the wicked and continues uh, or we can pick up also first Corinthians 5 3 to 5 for I on my part though absent in body but present and spirit have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, the day of the Lord, there's going to be some deliverance of the one that was uh, set apart, distinguished as having a, a, a the minimal, a poor testimony. So how do we the day of the Lord, the redemption of the Spirit? Oh my goodness, what are we getting into here? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Then there are the expectations of the day of Christ, expectations that appear consistent with his return. And so should we couple that together? I would say yes. 1 Thessalonians 311 to 13, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then this naturally carries over to a view to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who were Christ at his coming. And then we carry over to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say, to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. And so then where there appears to be some measure of overlap in the language of the resurrection, the day of Christ, the Lord snatching and bringing his church to himself. Is, how do we understand those matters? the language of judgment and standing before Christ and a reward-like judgment, but a judgment nevertheless. And we continue on to Second Thessalonians 1, 6 through 12 since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. So the revelation of Christ, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our witness to you is... Um, Was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill all your good pleasure for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming to judge the wicked, he's coming to deliver his people. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-2, Now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if it, from, as if it were from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Oh, now that one's really thrown a, a wrench in the whole thing, hasn't it? The coming of our Lord Jesus, the gathering together with him, The day of the Lord hasn't come. Have we just cobbled all these things together? What's happening? How do we understand it? What are we fixing our hope on? Well, there's numerous other texts that can contribute to this larger conversation. But I hope you get the idea that there's an overlap in language, sometimes overlap in themes. And it would even seem to be sometimes an overlap in timing. What's happening when? Who's the Lord dealing with? What's happening when he returns? What's happening with the wicked? What's happening with the righteous? And again, how do I fix my hope on this? And that's important to wrestle through, especially when, you're, when you identify the day of Christ as his return for the church, otherwise expresses the rapture, because that's our, our blessed hope, our Lord's return, our gathering together with him. Now, to this conversation, add how I walked us through the day of the Lord when I wasn't just reading from 2 Peter 3, but teaching through 2 Peter 3 about a year and a half or so ago, explaining that it was a season of time and not a singular day or occasion. It wasn't, ah oh, this is the day of the Lord, the 24-hour period. But it was an extended season, extended time that's marked primarily by judgment, and then finishes with judgment, a matter we'll return to momentarily. And then... With that in view, just hold that in view, how we understand the day of the Lord in terms of it being a season, and and hold in view the fact that the timing and the themes seem so close, and let me walk and simplify this. We all appreciate simplification, right? But you'll appreciate it more now that we've kind of cobbled some things together, because you're going to come across this text, and you're going to come across those things, and it's going to be such a point of encouragement. I want you to know what is that point of encouragement? Well, where are we today? Are we in the day of the Lord? No. Remember, don't let somebody deceive you or confuse you or fool you with that. It hasn't come yet. Well, why? How do we know that? Well, because there's things that are going to precede that. So it hasn't come yet. So where are you right now? Not only are you at Grace Bible Church, but right now you are in the church age, a season of redemptive history that began at Pentecost and will conclude at the rapture when the Lord comes for his people and we meet him in the air. That's the season of redemptive history we're in now. That's a season in which we we look forward to the day of Christ. It's a calibrating look. That that moment. Now, what is the day of Christ? Well, it's that moment of time. It's uh, what I'm persuaded should be considered uh, the day of Christ. It's that moment of time when he raptures the church. And as best as I can determine, because timing is very hard to determine that will also stand before the, the Bema seat of Christ or the, the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be judged before him. We don't like that. Why would you say you're going to be judged? Not judged for your sins. That's already been addressed in Christ's atoning work, right? Where there's, There is no like, well, after redemption, we have some things to address here. Not being judged for your sins. That's been resolved. You've been, uh, the, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon you whether we're being judged for our deeds. This is a time of reward, a time where the wood, hay, and stable will be, stubble will be burned up and the, the gold and precious metals will be refined. Now, from this, this moment, I would say the, the day of Christ inaugurates the day of the Lord. Ah, oh, that's why the language is so tight, because the Lord comes for his bride. He snatches the church up. He takes out... Really, the the, the preservational gospel witness. And what do we have? We have the inauguration, I would argue, of the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord, hence the intimate overlap, as we've noted, the Day of the Lord covers the time of the seven-year tribulation, runs through the millennial kingdom, and concludes with the great white throne of judgment, the judgment of the unbelievers throughout history. And so that's that extensive season of time, primarily marked by judgment. Now, following this judgment, we have the ushering in of the eternal state with the new heavens and the new earth, as Peter said in 2 Peter 3, in which righteousness dwells. Now, while a bit oversimplistic, perhaps, we could frame the day of the Lord with a view to two judgments. Um, Frank and I were kind of going back and forth, would it, would it be best that way? And he was content to say, as long as we're acknowledging it's a little oversimplistic, but it works. We're good? Okay. It's a view to the day of the Lord with two. uh, I would say, view with two, uh, with a view to two judgments: the judgment seat of Christ and the judge, the Great White Throne judgment. So the first is for the believers, being evaluated and rewarded. The final is the closing of the books, as it were, and the judgment of the unregenerate. So the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, is being part of the day of Christ. It inaugurates the day of the Lord, and it's that that we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the time in which the Lord comes. He's revealed. He comes back for his beloved. We're snatched up in there. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we will join them up in the air. We'll be transformed, and we'll enter judgment for reward. I think that's something to look forward to, right? Don't need to say, and that's why when I was in verse 6, I kept saying, it's not the day of the Lord, because I didn't want you to see how they're so closely, intimately knit together, and think like, I don't know. I'm fixing my hope on a season of tribulation. Well, God's righteous judgment, that is something to fix my hope on, but I'm with the Lord. And I'm fixing my hope on things that, well, I'm again, I'm with the Lord. I'm going to return with him and, and rule and reign with him. Okay, that's good. And then he'll enter final judgment. I would say the day of Christ is the calibrating focus when he comes for his own. And how do you want to be found? I don't think you want to be found as anything but excellent. I don't think you want to be found as anything but above reproach and reproved and not stumbling over others and people not stumbling over you. And if you love someone, you're going to pray for them accordingly, aren't you? Paul had an amazing affection for the Philippian church, and what does he do? He prays for them in view of the day of Christ. Now, I know that was a lot, but bear with me because I think I can help bring it together for you now. And to do that, we're going to contrast again Peter and Paul's engagement with the two ends of the day of the Lord. Again, Second Peter 3, Peter spoke of the end. That's part of why it's troubling is, well, we spent so much time in 2 Peter 3. we are you speaking about the end? The mockers are not mocking the return of Christ for his bride. They're mocking the fact that they're going to be held accountable. And that's why Peter says, oh, well, they're, they're saying that nothing's changed. They're saying that there's never been a judgment that I'm going to have to stand before God for. And what Peter says, actually, we've seen this before, you know, worldwide flood. So Peter, speaking of the end, Paul here in Philippians is speaking of the beginning. Peter framed his engagement with a view to God's patience and the need for men to repent. Paul framed his engagement with the aim of a maturing love. Peter also spoke to the day of the Lord in a context of the wicked, mocking mocking that Jesus had not returned. And if you recall, why did they mock again? It's because they were hoping it would never truly come to pass. Why? Because when Christ comes in judgment, they can't bear up under that. They don't want it. Now Paul is speaking of the day of Christ with the rapture of Christ's church and what happens when we're raptured, we're with the Lord and as John so beautifully stated, we will behold him and we'll be made like him. Or as Paul so magnificently shares, we will be transformed, transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And this I believe we will also, and and when this is when I believe we'll stand before judgment seat of Christ, a time in which we don't have to say I'm going to wish it away and mock it and make light of it, but rather we say, yes, come Lord, but Lord come and know that I pursued the excellent, the wood and hay and stubble, they'll be consumed, but the enduring and righteous works will be made to shine and with them reward. So it's in this sense that I think it's a reasonable, a reasonable to broadly see the day of Christ and the day of the Lord as a time of contrasting judgments, an opening judgment for which we joyfully anticipate and a judgment that the wicked cannot endure. Again, the wicked mock the day of Christ and the righteous long for it. Why? Because affection changes expectations. The wicked love their sin. They don't want a glorious return of Christ. We, we fix our love and our affection on our Lord. We long for his return. So it's a a work, it's it's a truth that works both ways. Again, if you're in Christ, its impact is quite clear. It must motivate us to a maturing love that pursues the excellent and secures a righteous life with a view to his return. Now, that would... It's like verse 9. It's a great place to land. But then he has verse 11. We're going to be really concise. I don't think it needs a lot of time. I think it's very clear. So we're going to land really soon. But Paul had one more thing to say, so I have one more thing to say. In order to be sincere and without fault into the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, how do we understand that? Why is that like an addendum? We, 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 have a climax. We fixed ourselves on the day of Christ, and then he says, "And then this fruit of righteousness." Well, it is valuable. So let's walk through it very quickly here. I recognize that this fruit of righteousness has been observed in in parallel with the the last two elements, being sincere without fault. So that's it presented a measure of challenge for me. How is it? How are they related? Sincere without fault, fruit of righteousness. It's in parallel with those elements. But it's also different. It has some differences. First, its placement is different. It's at the end. It's after the culmination, as it were, with the day of Christ. But perhaps more consequential in speaking to its placement is its verbal tense. So that you may be, that you would be, that you have been. Okay, he's changed something there. See, Paul was praying that the Philippians would be present tense, present and continued action, sincere and without fault into the day of Christ. That's what he's praying for them. However, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness is in the perfect tense, expressing a completed action with ongoing results, and I would argue is with a view to the day of Christ. Now, again, the first two elements are being secured up through this time. You're pursuing that. You're growing in that. You're striving after. that. The third, namely being filled with righteous fruits, has been fully satisfied at this time. Therefore, I would conclude that this filling is one that is accruing throughout one's growth and grace. You're continuing to be filled with fruits of righteousness, as in completion of filling, until the day of Christ, but then having been filled, its impact and function continues. And it's, not, it's, and it's not only the grounds for one's reward on that day, but for God's glory and praise. Your fruits of righteousness are returning continued thanks back to God. It's a source of your reward, and it's a source of Christ-continued glory. Therefore, our righteous fruit serves as a trophy-like expression of the work of Jesus Christ through you, and this to the glory and praise of God. And perhaps we can clarify it by considering what Paul states in Second Thessalonians 1, where he states of Christ's return, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, what day? The day of Christ, and to be marveled at among all who believed. To Be marveled at. As our, um, for our witness to you, it was believed. What's part of that marveling? It's part of his glory and it's part of the reflection of look at what he's done. Look at the fruit of righteousness he secured in his beloved. So what are the implications for us now? It's this building and progressing of that which is ultimately filling up the limbs of our life with righteous fruit. A righteous fruit that brings glory and praise to God. That's what we're driving to. And this drives both Paul to, and myself to a conclusion here. Was Paul praying for the Philippians? Yes. Was this his aim? Or was his aim for their greatest good? Yes. But was this his truest and final intent? No. In view of verse 11, his true and final attempt, or excuse me, aim, was the exaltation of Christ on his great day. You can think of it like, um, it's really weird when a kid gets invited to a birthday party and he thinks it's his. Have fun. Enjoy it. It was designed for your pleasure, but know that it was really about the other one. This is the day of Christ. You're striving to be prepared. The fruits of righteousness that are being cultivated and that will be fully cultivated are a view to his glory. It's his day, and it's the day we're longing for. And we see a like message expressed in Ephesians chapter 1. In him also we've been made um, an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are first, who have hoped in Christ, would what? Would be to the praise of his glory? Redemptive language, about you, about you. Uh, to what end? To the praise of his glory. And once more, in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge for our inheritance and to the redemption of God's own possession. Again, ah, uh, the language of our redemption, but to what end? To the praise of his glory. And so now we join in this aim too to the praise of his glory, because this is Christ day, the day of Christ that we're looking forward to. This is why we also express our great affection for one another by prayer. And what kind of prayer? Well, we pray that our love would abound more and more in view of that day, in view of pursuing and securing the excellent and viewing of filling our lives with fruits of righteousness. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, we want to have a like affection for you that Paul has demonstrated. It's really so much of what we're aiming after. We would testify and declare and affirm through song and speech and, and other uh, expressions of communication that we do love you. But Lord, that we would love you more that we would grow and mature in that. And then what's the nature of that kind of love? Well, it's a love that will also have a great affection for your church, your bride. And I think how we pray reflects much of our own convictions of our, for ourselves and for one another. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would uh, mature us to the place where we would pursue and desire and labor on behalf of one another in such a way that we would strive for and strengthen one another in prayer for our own maturity and for the maturity of one another all with a view to the day of Christ, all with a view to uh, pursuing that which is excellent, all with a view to living righteous and being beyond reproach and not causing stumbling, and all with a view to filling up the fruits of righteousness. Because we have an affection for you, Lord, and that affection transforms our lives. And you've given us a blessed hope. You've given us uh, the assurance of your sure return and the reward that will come with it. And so, Lord, we, we uh, want to just piggyback on Paul's, statement and as he concluded 1 Thessalonians that may the God of peace himself sanctify us entirely and may your spirit and soul or may our spirits and soul be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because faithful is he who called us and faithful he is he who would do it. Give thanks to you Lord in Jesus name. Amen.